0: following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Last minute cancellation last week, a uh, w- little bit of an uh, ill-timed uh, sort of family mini-crisis arose. Nothing uh, health-related uh, or anything, but I just... I was tied up at the time of class, so I appreciate your uh, flexibility, Um, but uh, anyway, all set this week, and uh, uh, here we are uh, uh, ready to resume, though, uh, you know, whenever there's a gap like this, I'm always like, wait, what were we talking about? So I'm going to try to, like, get myself back into uh, uh, the zone here. Um, All right. Uh, quick announcements. Uh no major earth-shattering announcements. One thing I wanted to emphasize is that uh our anytime audit quarantine special has been extended by a couple weeks just like everything else has been extended by a couple weeks. Uh so uh, uh again that's a, we're we're doing a, an across the board discount on all of our anytime audit uh courses uh uh for to help folks uh find some good educational things to do during during lockdown um uh so I, I just definitely uh want to uh bring that to your attention if you hadn't noticed that yet um we do have uh, just about a month before our summer semester starts at Signum in our masters program uh it starts on uh our 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 summer semester, which includes our new Star Wars course, is launching auspiciously on May the fourth. Uh, so that's uh, uh, that's a lot of fun. Um, uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention is that uh, we've, where there's a new activity, a uh, couple new activities that have been happening on our Twitch channel that I wanted to draw your attention to in case you hadn't noticed them. Uh, and that is, first, uh, we have a program that's been going on for a couple months now, uh, is our Signum Academy program, which is our, our uh, uh, reading and discussion program for kids. Um, and they're going to be talking about a wrinkle in time during the uh, month of April. So I wanted to uh, uh, commend that uh, uh, to folks. Again, it's a, a great activity for kids during lockdown. And uh, also, uh, Sparrow Alden has been uh, running a new thing called the myth uh writer space and uh the idea it's a it's a it's a creative writing space a a place for people to come and get uh prompts and encouragement to, uh and everything it's been running on our twitch channel as i said um uh this coming saturday uh from 3 to four thirty p.m eastern time is the next scheduled time and it's going to be running every weekend now uh for as long as the uh the lockdowns last so um Anyway, yeah, so that I just wanted to again if you are uh, if you are a writer and you are interested in if you're pining for some interactive writing community uh which I, I know is uh, uh often a, a really wonderful encouragement uh uh for other writers uh, uh Sparrow is a wonderful host uh, and has been doing a great job with that she actually is she runs a uh a writer' space a physical writer space uh here in new Hampshire um uh, up a little further north than uh, than I do, uh, and that's been a really successful undertaking. Uh, so I'm delighted to see her taking this virtual uh, during the lockdown. So anyway, okay. So all of those things are happening in Mythmoot. We don't know exactly, of course, can't predict the future, but as of right now, from all of our discussions with the venue, uh, we're we're everything we're still. As of now, planning on continuing to hold Mythmoot. As I've emphasized before, uh, there's, uh, you know, registering for Mythmoot is a no-risk uh, 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 situation. Um, you know, certainly if anything comes up, or if anything comes up either for the mood as a whole, if we end up having to shift it, or if... Uh uh something comes up so that you can 't attend then obviously uh we will uh refund everybody so there there 's no uh, uh there, as they say there 's no real risk involved uh there with uh with mythmoot but we 're really hoping uh that uh that will happen so we 'll see um all right let us move back i 'm got got all so my so many windows here i got to make sure i 'm covering up my there we go okay um all right. Excellent. Okay. Good. Hey, and I see Cecilia and Mary are with us as well. Very good. Very good. Um. Uh. Okay. Um. Let us get back to the text here. So, okay. Oh, good. Catriona was recommending Sparrow's uh, uh, Sparrow sessions. Glad you could uh, attend that, Catriona. Um. Okay. Cool. So we were. In the mm, I don't know what maybe we got like two thirds of the way through the Iñupiño. Um, it's funny after you know I was last week was not. See, normally when I do, um, you know, when I have to miss a week, like if I'm traveling or something like that, um, well, again, like normally I, uh, I have like that's. I'm still like doing my regular prep right like I prepped for last week. I was ready to go. I was ready to have class as usual, and then I ended up having to having to shift it uh, so it, it's, it's' kind of whole disrupted my entire uh, my entire thing, and yeah, I should probably, for instance, speaking of disrupting things, actually share my screen with those of you on GoToWebinar. that'd be good, okay, so. We're going to be looking at the way that the Pantheon gets reworked. We're going to be finishing the Ina Lindelay. Um, Again, continuing to see how Tolkien is sort of wrestling with some of these. Not just, again, I don't want to isolate it to the specific new concepts, like the round world versus flat world thing, right? But be thinking about the way in which this fits into the bigger picture, right? How he is taking the Silmarillion narrative, right? The Silmarillion content, and trying to reconcile it to its new narrative situation right now that it has been married uh, to the Lord of the Rings, one of the things that was kind of occurring to me that i didn't um that i didn't say last time, though you know maybe I should have said uh, or I, I know I was just like one of those obvious things that i didn't think of, but um a peculiarity and perhaps in its way a sort of fatal peculiarity perhaps uh of This whole period of how when he's wrestling with a legendarium is the decision that he makes that Christopher Tolkien doesn't ever like draw attention to. Right. Um, I mean, based on everything Christopher tells us or like, you know, all of the things that Christopher doesn't tell us in his notes here, um, we're given no indication that Tolkien at any time here was considering a radical revision to the approach to the Silmarillion material. That is, he's still writing the same kind of narrative. Uh, the Ainu Indue, right? Still, I mean, some, much of the content he was thinking of differently or, or, or at least experimenting with or toying with the idea of changing that stuff, but it's still in the same form, right? Uh, the annals, uh, I mean, okay. Annals of Amon instead of the annals of Valinor, but like, that's not a major difference, right? I mean, he's still, basically, he's still writing in the same narrative modes that he was writing before. Historical annals, um, the uh the, the that kind of uh you remember i was i taken to calling it the the plot summary genre right that he started developing when he started doing that plot summary sketch of the mythology that he did in nineteen twenty eight and then expanded that uh into uh into the Quentin oldinwa and then the Quintus Silmarillion of nineteen thirty seven so those forms um and 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 this is something, of course, I talked about a lot in uh, this uh, the film, film context uh, during that, because of course there, when uh, we in our Silmarillion film project discussions have been having our long term discussions of how we would theoretically adapt uh, the Silmarillion, one of the primary challenges of that adaptation concept has always been. The changing not even so much the change from print medium to film medium i mean that 's always a, a significant change in the kinds of storytelling involved, but for me, much more importantly, much more highly impactful uh, in the story and, the, uh, and, and and a much bigger contributing uh, element to the challenge of that adaptation. Is the shift from the kind of plot summary mode that the Silmarillion is written in, this kind of distant historical chronicle frame uh, that the Silmarillion takes things uh, from, and writing a close to the ground, uh, uh, you know, personal narrative, um, and that's really—it changes so much. It changes so much, and and again, the a lot of I attribute a lot of the struggles that he's having here to now having to fit the Silmarillion into this much more rigorously internally self-consistent kind of story frame, right? Um, it has to now fit with the coherent story, um, with the the more, The Lord of the Rings is not a novel, but it's much closer to novel than the Silmarillion is, right? Uh, to the novel form. So... Um, again, that kind of narrative, the kind of narrative that that the Lord of the Rings is. What I'm getting around and taking an enormously long time to say is that I was, I'm was i rather surprised in retrospect that it doesn't seem to have occurred to Tolkien to attempt the Silmarillion material again in that mode. That is, to write the Silmar to write the Legendarium stuff or some of the Legendarium stuff in more... The mode of the Lord of the Rings. Um, Why didn't he make it? Why didn't he tell it as historical romance? This is particularly uh, kind of glaring, I think, as a question, uh, because, of course, he did have that impulse at numerous points, right? In the past, he had dropped the whole legendarium project multiple times in order to undertake a heroic romance version, right? From the alliterative, uh, in, you know, in verse, of course, in the alliterative uh, 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 Children of Hurin, in verse with the Lay of Lathian, right? And you're absolutely right, David, that he does do that to an extent, right? Or at least he does begin doing that, um, with the revised tour version, right, that he does begin at this time. And also, Tony, you're right, he is ex- also expanding the Turin story at this time. He writes more of the prose Turin, um, the, the bits that are in Unfinished Tales, right, the extra bits that are in Unfinished Tales, and which get combined with the bits that are in the published Silmarillion in order to make the Children of Hurin eventually down the road, right, uh, like in 1997 or whenever it was that that came out. Um, so it's not that he didn't have this impulse at all. He did, right? But, um, I don't know, perhaps, David, one of the things I'm kind of coming back around to is to ask the question, which I've asked so many times, but from, for different reasons and with a different emphasis, why, oh, why didn't he complete the tour, the tour, the fall of Gondolin version that he started in the fifties, not only because it is, Definitely, the one thing that Tolkien began of all of Tolkien's unfinished projects, of all the things that he began and didn't finish, that is the one I wish. That is the top of my list of the things. If I could, if I could somehow historically intervene to get Tolkien to complete one of his uncomplete, th- that would be the one. It would. That would be the one I would choose. Um, but um, anyway, I, I. Uh, I but again, to me, the bigger question is not just why didn't he finish that story? I mean, okay, there might be bunches of reasons perhaps why he didn't do that. And, you know, in some ways, of course, it's not really my business. But the point is, why did he abandon that in order to go back to this old mode? It seems to me like he was making it harder for himself in a sense, right? Having, um, having sort of allowed the story to develop in the organic way that it did through the course of the writing of the Lord of the Rings. And having that, not only the things that did develop organically during that period, and we'll see some of those things impacting stuff tonight, I hope, uh, directly... Um, some implications that that has, that he's got to rework some things in the mythology. But again, it's, it's not just that, right? It's now a different kind of world. It's a different kind of story. And yet he tries to tell it in the old form, right? I'm still going to write annals. I'm still going to write the Quenta in the same form, um, in the same general form. I'm still going to write the Aina in the same form. Um, and I... You know, uh, again, I'm I'm not saying this because I'm, yeah, I don't want to just sound like I'm being impatient with Tolkien. Like, come on, <laughs> you know, come on, Taurus, what's going on? Uh, again, I'm just saying it's it's a little surprising to me, and I wonder, uh, you know, I mean, I wonder to what extent that choice was really sort of the fateful choice, right? I mean, is he trying to, um, is he trying to put new wine in old bottles, essentially? Uh, by um, keeping the Silmarillion in the form that he had decided he wanted the Silmarillion in before, um, I can almost imagine. Now, please keep in mind this is a, just a this this is a, a a particularly wild speculation on my part, right? But again, when I try to answer when I try to guess an answer, which is almost certain to be wrong, but when I try to guess an answer to the question, why didn't he finish the Two story, right? One of the answers that suggests itself to me is because he was saying like, okay, no, this is getting out of control, right? It has all of the earmarks of when the story is starting to get out of control, right? When this thing which he seems to have intended to be a short story was going to be... A, definitely a book-length thing, right? I mean, there's no way that that version of The Fall of Gondolin finishes in under, like, 300 pages. I mean, there's just no way. Um, that was going to be a full book-length story, which would have been awesome. But anyway, so I, my suspicion, if I could, if I had to guess, and this is only a guess, if I had to guess why he didn't finish Two or it was because he was saying, okay... I was gonna if I was I, I wanted to do a new version of the fall of Gondolin, but this is out of control, right? I can't I can't afford to invest the time that I would need to invest to do a whole book about the fall of Gondolin. I need to go back and revise the Silmarillion because I was on the cusp of being able to publish that. I could have had it ready. Nobody wanted to publish it. Now they want it. Now's the time. I got to go back. And so he does this. He revises the Ainu He starts revising the Annals of Amman, right? Because that is what the Silmarillion was to him. Like that's what it, that, that this is the published form that he was imagining, you know, in 1937. And so, which he returns to logically enough, right? At this point, as I say, that's my guess, but it's it's only a guess. But uh, that's sort of my uh, my thoughts there. Robbie wonders if uh, he would have purposely stuck with his older style to differentiate it uh, from the Lord of the Rings. It's possible. I mean, Robbie, I, I I certainly. I mean, it is interesting to me that he. Well, okay, no way. Let me come at this a different way. The moments when he does not make that distinction, right? Like the tour, right? I mean, the tour is. It's it it is entering into that mode. Right. It's it's not the same exact tone or anything of the Lord of the Rings. I'm not saying that the two of them are the same, but it's the same kind of story or it's a similar kind of story. In any case, um, one thing that he seems to have understood clearly um, is that. His whole cycle of stories, right? The whole legendarium can't be treated in that way. He can't say, I'm just going to write, rewrite the whole Silmarillion, but I'm going to do it like the Lord of the Rings, right? With the kind of in-depth detail and narrative and psychological realism and immediacy of the Lord of the Rings, I'm going to go back and I'm going to do the whole thing, right? From the, from the music of the Ainur all the way through the War of Wrath, right? Um, because he knew... I I think he must have known, again, we have no direct evidence of this, but the fact that he never seems to even have attempted that suggests that he knew that that was folly, right? Um, one could say that certain other 20th century authors could have learned from that, right? Uh, it is very likely, I think, that uh, both George R. R. Martin and Robert Jordan might perhaps have... Um, uh, taken a lesson from that thing that tolkien uh, didn 't uh, need to be taught, apparently, um, but anyway um, so Tolkien never tries that Robbie right so so what he does do though, and again we, and we see this impulse all the way back in the teens and twenties, right, um, arguably even earlier um, uh, the, to, to the the whole like i 'm going to expand and do a hero, uh, a heroic romance. But when he does that, he's just going to do the individual stories, right? He's just going to do the the Turin story. He's just going to do the Baron and Luthien story. He's just going to do the Fall of Gondolin story, right? Um, whenever he did shift into them. So the fact that he does, Robbie, shift into that mode suggests to me that he's not avoiding it on purpose right he's not saying like no i want to i want to keep like a, that like a sort of an, like a, a genre firewall up right between the the legendarium and and the lord of the rings um but rather that he knew he couldn't do the whole story so like, hey like Robbie, i'm not dissing robert jordan i i love robert jordan and and uh many thanks to brandon sanderson for finishing the wheel of time which i just read all of uh last year um uh but still like it was a bad idea <laughs> like it was not a good plan the real time was not a good plan uh i like it but it wasn't a good plan uh and george and the song of ice and fire is a worse plan obviously right um that hasn't panned out well um but anyway anyway um so okay um and tony it is possible you know he was in his late 60s at the time so maybe he didn't think he had time i agree um he might have been concerned about that and that could have also led to the urgency like again the contributing to that decision to drop tour uh and that sort of budding uh you know book length narrative uh and instead shifting to um um uh shifting to you know, let me just go back and tidy up what I've got, right? Because that's closer, right? It's closer to press. Um, Yeah, maybe. But um, uh, anyway, uh, Nelson, I do think that that the sort of psychological realism present in The Lord of the Rings was to some degree incompatible with the mythological framing of the Silmarillion. That's complicated, right? On the one hand, I agree. It would be really hard to do like the music of the Einor in the same mode that you're doing the Lord of the Rings, right? To, you know, to describe the music of the Ainur uh, in the same way that you describe Bilbo's farewell party, right? Like, no, you couldn't really do that. And I, so I agree it's incompatible uh, in many ways with that. But at the same time, I do think exactly the tension between the kind of psychological realism of Middle-earth as a whole, right? Of the history of... The kind of psychological realism which the Lord of the Rings demands of the history of Middle-earth as a whole is exactly problem number one with Tolkien's undertaking uh, in the revision of the Silmarillion. Um, uh, so as I say, I think it's a little bit uh, uh, complicated. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Okay. Um, uh, Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Uh, George says uh, it's like he needed a project manager and he had Christopher right there. Yeah, he does. He does. Of course, unfortunately, Christopher didn't have uh, uh, didn't have hindsight. Right. I mean, I can only imagine um, I can only imagine the number of times that Christopher Tolkien in like the last 40 years of his life. Right. Was like kicking himself in retrospect, (laughs) like, you know, like. I mean, I'm sure Christopher had a list of like the number of talks I'd wished I had had with dad in the 60s, right? Uh, like, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure Christopher must have been thinking that way. Um, yeah, yeah, anyway, okay. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um. Oh, Brian, I agree. So Brian says it's the realism of the Lord of the Rings story that makes the mythical elements make much uh, make such an impact when inserted into that realism. I agree. Again, I don't think at all that I I would I would never at all say that all of the material right uh, of the I mean, I I mean, honestly, from perhaps from the awakening of the elves at Qui and at least from the, uh, you know, the the unrest of the Noldor and the you know, the return, you know, the exiles, you know, the return of the exiles to Beleriand and the wars in Beleriand. All of that material, I think, could, in theory, um, by an enormously prolific and efficient author uh, uh, with very great longevity, could, in theory, have been done as this massive, you know, serial set of novels that would be like, I don't know what, two, three times as long as The Wheel of Time. Um... uh, yeah, in theory, I, 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 I do not, I, I would not say that that narrative style wouldn't work with the material. It, it would not all of it. I mean, I do agree with Nelson that not all of it would work. Um, again, especially it's hard for me to see the Valar stuff. Not only the music of the Ainur, but even the early wars between the Valar and Melkor and the lamps and stuff. It'd be challenging. It was challenging when we talked about it. Uh, when when we attempted to do this in film, film. um. But, um, anyway, uh, (laughs) David said on the top of Christopher's list, dad, about your penmanship. (laughs) Yeah, there's always that. Um, but, um, anyway, okay. I, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, okay, let's, let's. Get back into the text before I spend all of the whole class session tonight talking about, like, the sort of, again, backing up in the theory. But I, I I don't grudge this time because this is, this is for me the primary thing that I'm thinking through. I mean, as I've been rereading Morgoth's Ring this time and, you know, as, as I've been preparing for our sessions and stuff, it's, this is absolutely the picture, like, the the narrative that is really hooking me right uh, the sort of meta narrative right the 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 larger story of the story this is the thing that i am most fascinated by to see tolkien wrestling not just with details right and i admit that there are some there are some of the details that christopher is especially interested in kind of ferreting out apparent you know irregularities or discrepancies and there are, there are clearly some particular questions uh, that Christopher, as editor, is especially interested in in, in resolving, right? And I, I will confess, I don't share his interest in all of those things. I'm not saying I'm not at all interested in them. I'm just saying they're not the things that interest me most when I'm looking at these things. There have been several times uh, in these first few sections of Morgoth's Ring that we've been reading when Christopher is like, the most significant change here is this. And I'm like, well, you know, uh... Christopher, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, I see it. I hear you. Like, I, that's not that I don't think it's cool and interesting, but I don't that's not, to me. That's not the most interesting thing. So, again, for me, this is, you know, watching this sort of struggle has been um, uh, has been the thing that I've been really focused on. So kind of backing up and doing some uh, uh some broad uh. Um, uh you know overview here is uh is fun, oh yes, and sorry, Celia. so when I talk about meta narrative, what I mean so meta just means like when something is sort of like when we're making using the word sort of reflexively, so the meta narrative means the narrative of the narrative, right um so I am interested in how the story how the narrative of the silmarillion is 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 developing right um but I'm not just interested in the in the narrative of the Silmarillion. I'm interested in the larger narrative of the narrative itself, right? The story of how the story is changing. The story of how this story is developing in Tolkien's mind. For me, that's the story that I'm trying to put together. Um, uh, and so the it's one of the reasons why there's a lot of passages that I'm not going to be talking about, or right? There's a lot of bits that I'm sort of skipping over not because I don't, you know, so like, for instance, in the Aino Lindelay, I did not in any way pick the passages that I thought were most important simply to understand the Aino Lindelay. Right. Um, you know, so somebody who's reading the Ina Lindelay for the first time, like if you happen to be doing this class with me and have never read the Aino Lindelay before, I am not going to be a good guide to you at all about the Ina Lindale, Um, Because, again i'm i'm emphasizing the things not that are important to that story but the things which seem to me to point to the most interesting elements of this meta narrative of this of the story of the story um but um anyway okay um yeah so Oh, no, absolutely, Nelson. You are absolutely right that the Silm Film Project is basically an attempt to convert the Silmarillion into something resembling the Lord of the Rings. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that that creative project is every bit uh, as uh, <laughs> questionably uh, as, as every bit as foolish an undertaking as I was suggesting. Uh, I mean, it's this massive, massive thing, right? Um, but uh, anyway. Uh, okay. Anyhow. Okay. So, um, yeah, Nelson, I do not have any plans to go through the history of Middle-earth in the same way that I'm doing the Lord of the Rings and exploring the Lord of the Rings. For one thing, there is no, I will probably live long enough to complete the Lord of the Rings, our discussion there. Uh, there is no way that I would live long enough to do that. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I say foolish, um, i say foolish affectionately marie uh, uh it is uh, uh it is it is it is it is delightful it is worth doing i'm not sure that uh its undertaking was the wisest thing i've ever done is all i'm saying <laughs> i don't regret it that doesn't mean i regret it i'm just saying you know it's one of those things um but anyway <laughs> anyway um let's um uh, let's, as I said before, let's dig into the text here. So, um, remember that I was discussing the way, the impact of the frame narrative on the Ina right? The fact that the Ina in these earlier drafts contrasted with the Ina in the published Silmarillion, right, um, ha- still has the frame elements. We are explicitly reading a human's recording of the words of an elf to him, right? And we get the attributions, right? We know the provenance of these stories. We are reading this story because Alfwina brought these stories back to Europe, right? From Elvenholm, where he was told these stories By Pengalov, who was transmitting stories, many of which had been previously written before by Rumil the scribe. So, um, uh, that, and and so one of the things I I was attempting to convey, and I don't think I succeeded in conveying, what a radical shift, not shift. What a radical impact that has on my reading of the text, right? There are so many elements of the Eino so many passages that sound completely different if they are read in an authoritative narrative, narrator's voice, right? We're just asked to accept the narrator who combined with the the sort of um, tone and register of the narrative and... The sort of authority generally claimed makes it sound as someone said last time, uh, makes it sound like scripture right i mean it it its it seems very authoritative, whereas when we get the frame, passages like this, which again not word for word, but this passage you know passage like this survives in the published inalindo right, therefore he willed that it's aluvatar. That the hearts of men should seek beyond the world and find no rest therein. But they should have a virtue to fashion their life amid the powers and chances of the world, beyond the music of the Ainur, which is as fate to all things else. And of their operation everything should be, in shape and deed, completed, and the world fulfilled, unto the last and smallest. Lo, even we, elves, have found to our sorrow that men have a strange power for good or ill, and for turning aside from turning things aside from that purpose of Valar or of Elves, so that it is said among us that fate is not master of the children of men, yet are they blind, and their joy is small, which should be great. Okay, you see the difference now. Again, this gets changed. This passage is not exactly the same still uh, in the D-text, right? In the published Silmarillion, this is still from that that C-text, but um. I'm pretty sure it's from the C text. Now now I'm doubting myself. Is it from the D? I don't know. Anyway, the point is this is not the same as the published Silmarillion, right? But when all of these things about men and the sort of speculations about the relationship between men and, and fate is being done explicitly in the words of somebody who doesn't claim to know, right? Um, Lo, even we elves have found to our sorrow, right? Here's a thing we've noticed. We've noticed that men can screw things up like you would never believe, right? They have a strange power for good or ill and for turning things aside from the purpose of valor or of elves. I mean, they get involved and everything goes sideways. It's unbelievable what these people can accomplish says this elf in frustration, but he doesn't understand it, right? And even the way that he's looking at it from the outside. So it is said among us that fate is not master of the children of men, right? I mean, it's just what it looks like to us, right? It's almost like you guys can just do whatever, right? And and the music of the Ainur, like, doesn't apply to you or something, right? It's incredible, right? And yet you're blind, right? You should have this huge joy, and yet you don't, and we don't get it right When you put Pengowath back into the narrative right when 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 you can hear pangowath 's voice there, this is a completely different story um and it leads us to a very different um uh, relationship right with these passages, with these things. Uh, that are uh, that are said. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, Yana, I agree. Uh, uh, Yana says, uh, he almost sounds like a Baggins complaining about adventures. Men are nasty, uncomfortable things that make you late for dinner. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Karina, I agree with you. That phrase, is as fate, is interesting, right? She says it's not, uh, it's not, uh, is fate, right? But is as fate, right? Um, that is, again, uh, the music of the Ainur, which is as fate to all things else, right? And Kurita is right to say that is very different from saying beyond the music of the Ainur, which is fate to all things else. Many have drawn the conclusion from the. Um, Text in the published Silmarillion, and, and I know many people whom I respect very greatly who draw this conclusion uh, from that, I am not dissing this conclusion at all, um, have said, look, according to what it says in the Ainulindale, elves don't have free will. You don't have to like it, but that's what the text says. The text says that elves don't have free will. Men do. Elves don't. Elves are guided by fate. They are dominated by fate. They cannot change the course of events that is laid down in the music of the Ainur, whereas men can, and I agree. I mean, like that is indeed. I that is not only a defensible. That seems to be the explicit, um, uh, a, a, a denotation of what the published Lindeley says. But, um, Carita, that's where this passage becomes really important, right? Maybe he changed his mind more in that way. We'll, we'll watch that uh, as we move forward to see what he says about that um, uh, as he continues. But that's not what he's saying here, is as fate, right? It is, literally, it is like fate. It's, a, it's exactly Tony, it's a simile. It's a simile. Right? He is comparing the music of the Ainur to fate. He does not, is, is avoiding saying. Carita, as you're saying, it's a weird, it's a, it's an odd construction, right? Um, he's avoiding saying that the music of the Ainur is fate to all things else, um, which would be far the simpler thing to say in that sentence. Um, yeah, yeah. It does, Brian, leave open the question of whether there is an actual literal fate in the world. Whether or not events have been prescribed, right? Um, And what is the impact of the choice of individuals? Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, Janna, are the elves aware of this? Do they know they lack free will while men have it? Well, yeah. I mean, again, even in the published Silmarillion without the attribution of the frame... The explicit attribution of the flame. There's still the implicit sense that that's an elvish perspective, right? Um, uh, and so the fact that one still assumes, I think, one still has to assume elvish origin, ultimate elvish origin of uh, of the text of the published Silmarillion, even just merely within the context of the published Silmarillion. Um, there, there, we, even without the frame, there are enough indirect narrative cues to to imply that, right? And so therefore. They said it, right, and so therefore, presumably they know, and yes, I think the envy, the mutual envy, is more explicit um, but um, yeah, Tomas totally agree, Tomas says if it 's true that elves have no free will, then it 's unfair, you know is Feanor, getting a raw deal, right, like um, uh, why should he not be accepted by Mandos? Why should anybody be mad when he doesn 't choose to like you know to to give up the Silmarils? Agreed, no, I, that's absolutely it. I mean, and that's why, at the end of the day, I've never been too bothered with the question about whether elves have free will. Like to me, it's not even about that passage. I'm just like, I, this sounds <laughs> questionable. But honestly, my opinion about that passage in the Iindo way has always been, I don't care what it says, right? If it means that, if it means that elves have no free will? and everything that they do is, like, scripted in advance and they have no control, then, logically, like, the whole rest of the Silmarillion is meaningless, right? Like, it's... So, yeah. Like, it's... The whole rest of the story carries on as if they do, and their choices matter, right? And so, therefore, I proceed on that, uh, you know, I'm not going to go back and relook at everything in this Silmarillion and be like, but understanding that, you know, they, they had no free will whatsoever. Well, okay. Then like, there's no story. So, um, uh, uh, yeah, again, like there's, they certainly believe they have choices and what's more, the Valar certainly act as if they believe that they have choices. Uh, you know, so, uh, anyway, um, uh, yeah, no, Sarah. You can definitely point to places where explicit choice is granted, like Mandos to Luthian, Sarah. Exactly. Yeah, no. I again, like I said, um, I have always felt I have just never really troubled myself with that passage because although I can in in the published text, because although I can absolutely see why how you could construct an Elvish you know theology which absolutely denies free will based on that passage. In my opinion, you can only do that while jettisoning, jettisoning everything else, right? If you're willing to throw the whole rest of the book out the window, you could read that passage that way. But since I've never been willing to do that, I just don't, right? Uh, that's, that's it. Um, but, um, uh, anyway. Um, yeah, Marie, I agree that the existence of divine providence doesn't preclude free will, right? It's all in Boethius. Um, the only question is just whether we're like permitted uh to uh uh to extend that reasoning uh to elves or not and I have taken the liberty of, extend- of so extending it throughout my dealings with the Silmarillion and, and that's okay I'm fine with that um uh, but anyhow okay um uh let's keep going Okay, here's one of those examples where I was uh, not in perfect agreement uh, with Christopher about what was the most important thing. Okay, the central shift in the myth of the creation lies, of course, in the fact that in the old form, so this is the shift from B to C, right, the shift from uh, from the old version that he had written in 1937 uh, to the revised version that he worked on in response to the rejection of the round world version, right, the C star version. Um, Okay, sorry. Uh, In the old form, when the Ainur contemplate the world and find joy in its contemplation and desire it, the world has been given being by Luvatar. whereas in C, it is a vision that has not yet been given being. So you'll remember uh, that in the published Silmarillion, there's sort of three stages, right? There's first there's the music. And the drama inherent in the music, right, sort of lays out and prefigures the drama of the world, right? There is, at the end, there's the actual creation. There's, you know, Ea, let these things be. And then, of course, the Valar enter into the world and find that they have to shape it and form it and make and enact the music again, right, to make it all happen. In the published Silmarillion, of course, there is that intermediary thing. The music ends, and then Iluvatar says, behold your minstrelsy, right, and shows them the vision of what they have, like, here is the world that you have made through your music, right? And he gives them this vision, and then he makes it be, and then they enter into it and find that they have to do it. So there's a sense in which we get the, like, it's it happens three times, right? Or it's sort of the The drama of the world is played out in one form or other three times, right? Um, So, uh, um, I agree with Christopher that it is really important that the vision is introduced. So in the old version, there was no vision. It just goes straight from music to creation, right? And he takes... He makes this intermediary step. He goes out of his way to create this intermediary step. So the Behold Your Minstrelsy business is new, right? Um... Okay, so he says, with this may be compared my father's words in the account of his works written for Milton Waldman in 1951, from that famous letter that we've alluded to before and that Christopher has quoted from before, where he gives the really long summary of the Silmarillion when he was trying to convince Milton Waldman of HarperCollins to publish the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings together back in 1951. They, the Valar, are divine, that is, were originally outside and existed before the making of the world. Their power and wisdom is derived from their knowledge of the cosmogonical drama, which they perceived first as a drama, that is, in a fashion we perceive. Sorry, that is, as in a fashion we perceive a story composed by someone else, and later as a reality. Okay, let me read that again. They, the Valar, are divine, that is, were originally outside, and existed before the making of the world. So. They're not a product of the world. They're not part of the world, right? God doesn't make the world and the Valar with it, right? Their life and experience is not circumscribed by the created world. In that, that is the sense in which he says they are divine. They are outside and existed before the making of the world. Their power and wisdom is derived from their knowledge of the cosmogonical drama. So the power and wisdom of the Valar, when the Valar act with power, and teach with wisdom, right, Uh, guide with wisdom the events of the world, right, the events of Arda after they've entered into it. They They are made capable of doing these things because of their knowledge of the story, right? Because they've gotten spoilers already, which they perceived first as a drama, that is, as in a fashion we perceive a story composed by someone else and later as a reality. Their power and wisdom comes from knowing the story in advance, at least partly. They composed the music, so they know the elements that went into the making of the story. They have lived it once already, in a sense, right? In a different mode in the music. Now, they don't always know. We can see that they don't always know how that's going to translate into you know, history, right? Into, uh, uh, into events, right? Um, and sometimes they're surprised at what those things actually look like, as, as we see explicitly in the narrative. Um, but there's a sense in which they, they're familiar with it already, right? It's already a story that they have contributed to, that they've been telling. But the vision introduces a different element, right again if we didn't have the vision we'd still have that they'd still have their own experience and memories of the music right and then they'd have their experiences as they're going through and shaping it in re- in in real time right um so even back in the old version of it they still had both of those things they had their own experiences their own thoughts and desires their understanding of the part of the mind of Luvatar that is placed within them, right? The music that is that is sort of the part within the music that is given to them, which they, the Valar, not Melkor, obediently uh, 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 followed, right? Obediently um, worked within, right? So, because of their under, so even back in the old days, because of their understandings of those things, and the way in which they can they can see how these things are playing out, right? They have much wisdom and understanding not only of how the world is working and how it is gonna work, but how it should work, right? Um, okay, so that was always true. So what is the significance of the vision then? Tolkien's emphasis is that they through the vision by being made by a Luvatar into passive recipients, of the drama of history, of the cosmogonical drama, right? That is the drama of the creation of the world, right? Um, when Iluvatar makes them sit back and say, hey, let me show you, this. let me tell you the story of creation. Let me, let me, Iluvatar does an adaptation, right? He takes the music and he adapts it into a visible uh, medium, right? He, he does a, he does a, so, When Iluvatar does the first ever film adaptation, right? And he does a film adaptation of the music and shows it to them. And they receive it. They watch it, right? And they become viewers, passive viewers. As in a fashion we perceive a story composed by someone else, right? And because they've seen it that way, because they've seen it from the outside, As it were, not just from the outside in the sense of being outside of the normal flow of time and outside of the uh, the boundaries of Arda, right? But even outside the process of making, because even when they have, when they could combine just the two things, that is their own memories of the music on the one hand and their own experiences within Arda on the other hand, right? When, when, when all they had in the old version were those two things, it's still all filtered by their own perceptions. Right? It's still limited by their own understanding of their parts in the story. They know their parts of the music and how they contributed. They heard some of the others, right, and sang with them and blended with them in some ways, so they can have some partial and secondhand uh, understanding of those things. But again, it's still all centered on them themselves, right, on their own experience, as is, of course, their experience in art. Even more so, right. The vision therefore grants to the Valar, the Iluvatar eye view of the thing, which they did not have access to in any other way, right? They are more clued in to the big picture. That's what Iluvatar accomplishes by showing them the vision. And that's a big deal, right? Think about, remember, some of you will remember this, and I know some of you have kind of joined our discussions later than this and haven't been slogging through these books with me for, you know, golly, what is it now? Going on seven years now that we've been doing not just this, you know, not this history of Middle-earth, but the Mythgard Academy series. Way back, you know, in like 2014 or 2015, when we did the Book of Lost Tales, you may remember, those of you who were here, that we were really emphasizing what a different set of characters the Valar were, Right. Um, and one of the ways in which we were talking about it at the time is that the published Silmarillion tells the story of the Valar, um, just like the Lord of the Rings tells the story from the point of view of the hobbits looking up at the big people, right? So you've got the great heroes, Aragorn and Gandalf and even Boromir, um, Uh, And then you've got, you know, like the normal people, right? The little people, the hobbits. Um, And to some extent, the Silmarillion is kind of parallel to that, where the normal register, right? The eye level of the narrative of the published Silmarillion is elves, right? And they're sometimes looking a little bit down towards men, not always really down, right? But sometimes a little bit down. Um, But in any case, most importantly, up at the Valar, right? Whereas in the... Book of Lost Tales narrative, the eye level of the narrative is the Valar themselves. They are the characters. Um, uh, 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 They are the characters and uh, um, they are not treated with anything like the reverence that we see for them uh, in the narrative of the published Silmarillion, right? This seems to me a really important element of that shift. A really important thing there. The Valar were just more clueless. I mean that I don't I don't think that's unfair. Those of you who are remembering the Book of Lost Tales can tell me whether I think whether you think I'm going too far there, but they're genuinely bumbling at times. They do. I mean, there's like, there's slapstick comedy among the LR in the book of lost tales. Right. Um, they, um, uh, they do. Um, I mean, not only, I mean, I'm thinking not only of scenes charming and, and delightful as they are, um, uh, like where they, uh, the, you know, where they're, Bringing the last flower of Telperion in to be made into the moon, and they accidentally trip and drop it. So, and that's why there are the dark spots on the moon, right? It's a lovely story. It's a charming story. It's an endearing story. But it's, I mean, come on. Like they trip and drop the moon, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, yes, buffoonery. There's buffoonery involved there, Stephen. Um, and, um, there's, um, there's, you know, there's that, remember that scene when when melkor sends a uh sends an ambassador to them right and he's really like disrespectful the ambassador is really disrespectful and they kill him right they take him and they throw him off a cliff and they kill him and then afterwards they're like oh uh Ah, I guess we shouldn't have done that. That was kind of rude, <laughs> right? I mean, look—it's—it's it's how they were, right? And yes, Marie, they think and say things that turn out to not be true. And that—that's—that's that's the other thing that I'm thinking of when I say that they are, um, um, that they're, that they're clueless, right? Yeah, the lamps of ice, Marie. That's a great example. Melkor fools them, right? The destruction of the lamps happens because Melkor, unbeknownst to the rest of the Valar, right. Uh, he secretly constructs the pillars of the lamps out of ice. It's like like the lamps are an elaborate, practical joke played at the expense of the rest of the Valar, right? So he builds these these the pillars out of ice, and he's like, oh, yeah, that'll work. That'll work. Yeah, just do that. So they put these huge, like, flaming, burning lamps on the top, and what happens? They melt, right? And the lamps come crashing down, and it creates two inland seas, and Melkor has a, has a good laugh at their expense, right? But, I mean, like they're just like, they're clueless, right? Not always and not all the time. I'm not, but anyway, you see the kind of thing that I'm saying, right? Um, Tolkien has made a choice here. Um, the vision, the, the introduction of the vision, which in some ways seems like a sort of a small formal thing, but I think it's, it's an indicator of a big thing, right? A big shift in how he's viewing the Valar and their relationship with Arda and their relationship with the narrative, right? Um, they are not clueless like that anymore. Um they are uh um <laughs> Yeah, you're right, Yana. There aren't that many sharp tools in the Valinorian shed <laughs> back in the Book of Lost Tales days. Uh yeah, yeah. Um uh, yeah, good oh yeah, Arthur, you were talking about the the, the lamp thing too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um anyway, uh and yes, those of you who are saying it makes them sound more like the Norse gods, totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. Um, and uh, you're right, Stephen, that whole ice pillar thing, that's, that's like a Loki-ish move if I've ever heard one, right? I mean, Loki would have been proud of that one. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, anyway. Uh, yeah, sure, certainly we can, we can hear that kind of thing. The point is... We can see not only that he is shifting the narrative, but we can see how he is doing it right. We can see the way in which those kinds of gods, those kinds of divinities, are no longer um, no longer consistent with the kind of story that he is telling right He does not any longer want to tell those that kind of story. And the vision is a really delicate way of conveying this, right, of creating this new situation, of shifting that narrative. Now, David, you asked a wonderful question, uh, and you are absolutely right that I buried that. Um, uh, uh, You didn't miss it. I did, David. Um, What was the nature of my disagreement with Christopher Tolkien? Sorry, it's very indirect. I don't disagree with him that the vision is significant. Um, I... what I uh, so the two things. One, this is actually one of the places I agreed with him more. But I, I guess I, I guess David, my biggest disagreement is that this kind of thing seemed to me uh, the thing that Christopher was is most interested in. Right, the thing that he's absolutely fascinated by throughout the discussion of this of the is what the word Arda means, right, and how the concept of the world changes and what when Tolkien says the world when he says Ea, right, what does that mean? Again, not saying that's not interesting. It really kind of is, and it has some significant theological and philosophical implications and stuff and that's yeah, absolutely. But like I think this is way more important. I, I think I think Christopher undersells this, David is the main thing that I was going to say. Um he brings this up very rightly. Um but um but this kind of thing seems to me uh to be uh well, anyway, it was certainly one of the the kinds of changes that I was much more interested in, more interesting in more interested in yeah that's what i mean um yeah good good yeah jennifer uh the vision gives them an element of omniscience or like secondhand omniscience right they've been shown the 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 you know the plot summary right um uh and this knowing gives them a much more sober dignity yes exactly they're much more sort of in control of things okay Here's another place where uh, there were just there were things that I was really interested in in the narrative that uh, Christopher was less interested in. So I wanted to draw some attention to some of the things that I found were cool. The far more complex account in the new. So this is the the, the narrative of the Melkor narrative. So this is the story of the different struggles, like the sequence of different struggles that uh, Christopher made. So. There are two reasons why I wanted to quote this, and this is long this is a two-slide passage. Um, there are two reasons why I wanted to quote this. One is I wanted to quote this because I am super glad that Christopher did it. Uh, this synopsis of the Melkor story is extremely valuable because it's so easy to get turned around and confused about, like, wait, how many times did he even come back and all that kind of thing, right? So uh, really, really glad that he did, did that, and it's worth just reviewing. But secondly, because I think there are some interesting things that we can see here that Christopher doesn't emphasize, so, which is, yes, so good, which is fine. It's not his job to point out everything. It's his job to give us the text. So, okay. The far more complex account in the new work of the movements of Melkor and of his strife with the Valar is an indication at once, therefore, that shifts have taken place in the cosmology. In the Ainul proper, it is now told that Melkor entered the world with the other Ainur at the beginning. He was there from the first, and claimed earth for his own. But he was alone, and unable to resist the Valar, and he withdrew to other regions. There followed the labors of the Valar in the ordering of the earth, and the curbing of its tumults, and Melkor saw from afar that earth was become a garden for them. Then in envy and malice, he descended upon earth to begin the first battle of the Valar and Melkor for the dominion of Arda. The words earth was become as a garden for them are not to be interpreted as a reference to the spring of Arda, for the description of this follows in the words of Pengaloth, where appears also the holy new element that Tolkus was not one of the Ainur who entered the world at the beginning but came only when in the far heaven he heard of the war in the little world. Okay, continuing there. Then follows the building of the lamps and the spring of Arda, for Melkor had fled from the earth a second time routed by Tulkas, and brooded in the outer darkness. At the end of a long age, he came back in secret to the far north of Middle-earth, whence his evil power spread, and whence he came again against the Valar in renewed war and cast down the lamps. Then the Valar departed from the island of Almar, in the Great Lake, and made their dwelling in the uttermost west, and from Valinor they came against Melkor again. But they could not defeat him, and at that time he built Utumno. There are thus four distinct periods of strife between Melkor and the Valar, and he departed out of Arda and returned to it twice. Okay, so here's my question. What do you make of this? Thinking of those meta-narrative things I was talking before, what's the story of the story here? remember the trend, as Christopher points out at the beginning here, yeah, there, um, is that the account of Melkor and his strife with the Valar is far more complex than the other version had been. Um, Why? Why is the Ainulindale story trending in the direction of this increased complexity. What do we see? What do we see in this story? How does, it, how does it fit? How does it work? What do we get from it that we didn't get from the simpler version? Remember the stages. The new things. His coming in originally, right? He comes in and then he leaves. And then he comes back. And there's war. But Tolkis shows up. He gets his butt kicked. He leaves again. Then he sneaks back. Right? And then he initiates war uh, by stealth and surprise. Right? And he wrecks the lamps. And then there's war again. But this time they can't rout him. Right? They can't beat him. And he takes refuge in Utumno, which they can't initially, they initially fail to get him out of, right? Um, good. David says a more complex story necessarily creates a bigger character arc for Melkor. Um, yeah, David, I, I mean, I think it is interesting that perhaps Tolkien is more interested in, in the fall, specifically in the fall of Melkor, I think than he used to be. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, David, that is to me one of the primary things that jumps out at this, right? By adding all of these comings and goings of Melkor, right? To me, one of the one of the clearest new trends that was not there when we didn't get all the comings and goings is Morgoth's persistence, right? First you get you get that first almost um impetuous sounding declaration, right? When he names it unto himself. Uh when he um uh, when he comes into the world and is just like, "Yes, this is mine," and they're like, "Um, no, no, it's really not yours, right?" That's it. We so we see his first reaction, um, and one of the effects David there is to set the stage of the sort of the dynamics of the fall, right? To contrast the love of the Valar for Arda with the love of Melkor for Arda, like. Their 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 relationships with Arda are provided a contra- There's their similarity there, right? Just as the Varda bind themselves to Arda because of their love, right? Because of their devotion to the Arda concept and their desire to remain connected with it and their investment in Arda, right? Melkor has a similar reaction, but it manifests its, manifests itself differently. So that's the first scene that is set for us, right? But poor Melkor, it's not working out the way that he wants. Right? He loves it. He wants it. He desires it. He claims it for his own, but he can't have it. But the story doesn't end there. He comes back. He comes back with war. He comes back and fights them, and we get that. Um, uh, we get that first. Um, Uh, What's the, what's the, that phrase, the, uh, the, the first battle of the Valar and Melkor for the Dominion of Arda, right? His envy of them living, you know, having what he wanted, but can't have, right? What he failed to get. And, and his, so his stubborn return now to bring war, not just strife. There was conflict before, but the first time it's like creative disagreement, Right, who's in charge of this project? What direction are we making this project go? So all the business about like the tumults and everything, right? the curbing of the tumults and the ordering of the earth, again, like that's creative differences, right? Um, now he's coming back not just with creative differences but with war, right? We can see, I think David Arc, right, progress in his character there. Um, and now he's coming down. Now he's 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 coming back, and this time he's ticked off, right? And he's not going to take it anymore. But also, again, remember he 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 had the chance to walk away. He left, right? He left. He could have just stayed out, but he can't. He won't. He looks back on Arda, and he wants it still, and he can't give it up, right? Um, and he comes after it again even though it means for, And he almost wins, right? But then this Tolkis jerk shows up, right? Laughing at him and beats him up. And he flees again, but he still refuses. Now he's tried war and he's lost that too. But he still keeps coming back. Now I'm going to try stealth. Now I'm going to try sabotage, right? Uh, now I'm going to, having learned from my military mistakes last time. I'm gonna establish a better stronghold for myself so that they can't so that I'm gonna dig my claws as deep as I can in the very roots of this place, right? Uh so that I cannot be rooted out of it. Right. Um it's it's a much more fascinating and compelling narrative, right? Um uh yeah, Yana, I agree. The laughing aspect of Tolkas pops out much more in this version, right? And I agree, it's even more appealing than before. Um, uh, Tolkas in the Book of Lost Tales is a little bit zany, right? But, like, you know, a lot of them are, right? You know, he's a little bit off the wall, and he's cool, and he's funny, but he's... Uh, um, uh, but again, that's that's sort of, in some ways, the laughing it's it's like not the norm. There, there, there's a lot more laughing in the Book of Lost Tales on everybody's part, right? Um, but Matt, that is exactly exactly what I was thinking when I was reading this. It sounds like Gollum, doesn't it? Remember the title of this book? How all of uh, Arda is hmm. Morgoth's ring, right? Uh, you know that 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 is a a quote from Tolkien in this period that Christopher is drawing on in order to. Uh, uh, give the title to this volume. Uh, you can see it, right? Can't you see it emerging here? Um, so it's not just that he's getting more of an arc, David. I absolutely agree with you. We can be the arc that he's getting begins to sound a little familiar, right? There is a sense, Matt, in which he does both love and hate Middle-earth, or not just Middle-earth, Arda, um, as Gollum loves and hates it. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. He loves and hates Arda as he loves and hates himself. Stephen was just saying, too. Definitely. Definitely. Um, uh, yeah. Interesting. So Nelson is wondering, is Tolkien uh Sauronizing the character of Morgoth in a sense? Great question, because, of course, Sauron has emerged not only through the Lord of the Rings, remember, but through the whole Numenor story that was beginning to emerge, you know, was already emerging before he wrote the Lord of the Rings and which he interrupts the Lord of the Rings to come back and work on again. Um, uh, Yeah. Sauron has been emerging as this big, uh, um, big villain. Right. But no, but I mean, I I agree that in some ways the parallel with Gollum is closer, but I was thinking the same thing, Nelson. Um, Are there ways in which you remember that in the published Vela Quinta, uh the text says that Sauron follows his master right on the same uh, uh the same path down into the void. One could almost ask in chronology right in the outside world in tolkien 's own creative chronology doesn't it work almost the other way around? isn 't there a sense in which Melkor is in fact following in the Sauron? Uh, footsteps, actually, in Sauron's footsteps instead of the other way around. Retroactively, of course, it still works that Sauron is falling in Morgoth's footsteps, but you see what I mean, right? Um, So is there an element of that, Nelson? I think there is an element of that. Um, Even, of course, which is a lesser point, but still, um, even the inclusion of Sauron and the way that Sauron is included. Notice one of the other changes that he made was the drawing attention to the significance of melkor recruiting folks right remember melkor has no followers he's got nobody at the beginning then he goes off and he finds some peeps right he goes out and he comes back with a posse the second time right uh and they uh, uh and that's how he fights with them so the idea that he is that he so uh, you know we see also tolkien not only giving Morgoth himself more of an ark, but planting, um, the, the seeds, right. Uh, establishing the framework for Sauron himself. Um, but, um, yeah, no, Lind, Sauron is definitely, uh, a completely separate being, uh, from, uh, Morgoth. And that becomes, I think, even clearer here. Um, uh, because uh w- when we get more of the uh the sort of actual kind of seduction of that separate spirit that that Maya spirit who is Sauron. But um uh but uh, but yeah again those the their stories are, are, are more differentiated here. Uh because again Lynn I mean it's a very sensible question because when you look backwards it's not always a no brainer, I think. You know, it's um it's um very, I think there's, um, there's some doubt in some ways as to whether or not these two characters ultimately are going to be the uh, same. In the end, they're differentiated, but I think they're not always wholly differentiated, really, uh, in, some, in some senses. That's complicated. Anyway, all right, let's keep going. i to get past the end of the know Lindale tonight. Okay, uh, so here's Round World Melkor. But Manwe was the brother of Melkor, and he was the chief instrument of the second theme that Iluvatar had raised up against the discord of Melkor. And he called unto himself others of his brethren in many spirits, both greater and less, and he said to them, Let us go to the halls of Anar, not amended, where the sun of the little world is kindled, and watch that Melkor not bring it all to ruin. So, uh, Sorry, I should have reminded you, I, calling this roundward, round world Melkor wasn't enough these are passages that we, we we've now finished uh Christopher's discussion of the C text of the Ainulindale right the one which is the precursor of the published text the revised version the the sort of what he decides is the definitive post lord of the rings revised version until he does the D text right um this is from that C star text this is from the that other version of the Ainulindale uh that he gives to his friend and which she doesn't like as much right so here in these next few passages we're gonna be looking at some of the things that he was experimenting with, uh, which uh his friend told him uh didn't fly as well. Sorry, I'm blanking on her name. Somebody remind me of her name. Mrs. What? Begins with an F blanking. Sorry, I apologize. I'm I'm uh having some aphasia where her name is concerned. Anyway, um so uh I want to give her credit because, again, I am enormously grateful to her. So I'd... Uh, Farrer, yes. Mrs. Ferrer, Thank you. Um, uh, so, yes. Yeah, so this is from that version that Mrs. Ferrer rejected. Right? Okay. But Manwe was the brother of Melkor, and he was the chief instrument of the second theme that Iluvatar had raised up against the discord of Melkor. And he called unto himself others of his brethren in many spirits, both greater and less. And he said unto them, let us go to the halls of Anar, where the sun of the little world is kindled. And watch that Melkor bring it not all to ruin. So notice Manwe gathering everybody together, but of course the sun's already there, right? In the new world. The sun of the new world is already kindled. And they went thither, Manwe and Olmo and Aule and others of whom ye shall, th- thou shalt yet hear, Alfwina. And behold, Melkor was before them, but he had little company, save a few of those lesser spirits that had attuned their music to his. And he walked alone, and the earth was in flames. The coming of the Valar was not indeed welcome to Melkor, for he desired not friends, but servants. And he said, This is my kingdom, which I have named unto myself. But the Valar answered that this he could not lawfully do, for in making and governance they had all their part, and there there was strife between the Valar and Melkor. And for a time Melkor departed, and withdrew beyond the arrows of the sun, and brooded on his desire. Okay, so notice similarities and differences, right? Similarities in that we can see in both versions, he's contemplating the same kinds of developments in the narrative and character arc of Morgoth, right? Notice the comparative loneliness of Morgoth compared to Manwe and his... uh, you know, his large team, right? His, uh, the fellowship with which he arrives. Um, so that's one thing. No, again, the the sort of that drama of this is my kingdom, which I have named unto myself. I love the present perfect tense there, right? Like I have named it. It's done. You're too late, right? I already put the Melkor flag on this planet, right? This place is mine. Y'all are interlopers. Thanks very much, but go back home. I don't need you or want you, Right um you're right george he just had a couple cats with him at this point i'm sure that's correct um yeah yeah um yeah jocelyn i'm not sure i'd recommend brooding on your desires it does sound pretty awesome right but uh there's a pretty uh there's a pretty poor uh turnout uh historically speaking for tolkien characters who spend much time brooding on their desires right generally not a hobby i'd recommend um but uh, yeah, get off my flaming lawn, Tony. Really, is what he says, right? Um, but um, uh, but anyway, okay. So uh, we can see some similarities, but there are also some fairly important differences with the sun, right? I don't want to lay too much too much stress on this, but the sun. Here is one of the ways in which I would use this passage to kind of illustrate um, why I'm not a big fan of the round world version, right? Why I think the flat world version is better with no sun. This is the first encounter. This is the first entrance of Manwe and the other Valar into Arda, and they find Melkor but newly arrived and having already claimed it. And the sun's already there it's like they have to shape and form the world except for, you know, a lot of it which is already shaped and formed in advance, right? Uh, the, the mythic power of um, the, uh, sorry, let me let me go back for a second uh, to the just to read the passage um, the, yes, the ordering of the earth and the curbing of its tumults, right? That 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 stuff, right? Where we get the this idea of the primordial shaping of the world, right? That when Iluvatar listens to the music, shows them the vision, and then sends them off. But when they get there, they find like, wow, okay, square one, right? It's time to, we've got to, turns out we've got to build this world from scratch, right? This is not a world from scratch. It's already got a sun, right? There's this sense of pre-existing condition, right? That we get um, which for me the sun is just kind of um, is just kind of uh, uh, one representative of, but it, to me it feels discordant, right? It it to me it undermines the whole mythic power of this concept of this initial struggle with him. So the struggle is still there. He wants to be telling the same story about Melkor, but to me that story doesn't have nearly the same force when the arrows of the sun are already there, right? Um, Yeah. (laughs) George says, thank Eru for Mrs. Farrar. Hey, man, like, I'm with you. I'm with you. I I can join you in that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, And Josiah, yes, I don't think I understand the phrase, the arrows of the sun. You want to talk about Christopher Tolkien wants to talk about, you know, it indicates cosmological developments. You want to talk about cosmological developments. Why is the sun shooting arrows? Who's shooting arrows? What's it doing? Shoot at Melkor? Is is this is there enmity between the sun and Melkor, and if so, why? I, I mean, yeah, I'd like can uh, you know, inquiring minds want to know, and I really don't know. Um. Yeah, yeah, um. And Michael, I do agree. It destroys the whole story of, uh, of uh, you know, sort of Melkor hoarding light. Yeah, yeah. That 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 light is already. I don't know. I mean, you can say he's laying claim to the sun as well, right, in claiming all of the earth, and I, I, I you know, whatever. But, um, uh, yeah. No, see, Tony, I agree. When we get Aryan and the making of the sun, and, you know, Aryan driving the chariot of the sun with the fruit of uh, Laurelin in it, you know, that's a, a sort of a quaint mythic story, but it works as a mythic story, right? This does not work as well for me as a mythic story. Um, yeah, I and good. No, Nancy and Matt are both uh, Matt Duke are both saying that arrows of the sun. I mean, it seems like a metaphor for sunbeams. I agree, but but why? Why? I mean, why that metaphor? Right? That metaphor suggests that especially withdrew beyond the arrows of the sun makes it sound like you know he was sick of holding up his shield to deflect the arrows of the sun. Like the arrows of the sun are aimed at Melkor, and that's bad or harmful or. Inconvenient in some way, right? That he's got. I, I don't know. Like I said, I'm I, I'm 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 saying I don't get it. So I, I don't pretend I have an explanation. I just uh, I just don't get it. Um, but um, anyway, okay. More more around world Melkor, and Melkor was shaken by the laughter of Tulkas and fled from the earth. Then he gathered himself together and summoned all of his might in his hatred, and he said, I will rend the earth asunder, and break it, and none shall possess it. But this Melkor could not do, for the earth may not be wholly destroyed against its fate. Nevertheless, Melkor took a portion of it, and seized it for his own, and reft it away, and he made it a little earth of his own. And it wheeled round about in the sky, following the greater earth, wheresoever it went, so that Melkor could observe thence all that happened below, and could send forth his malice, and trouble the seas, and shake the lands. And and still there is rumor among the Eldar of the war in which the Valar assaulted the stronghold of Melkor, and cast him out, and removed it further from the earth, and it remains in the sky, Ithil, whom men call the moon." There is both blinding heat and cold intolerable, as it might be looked for in as, as might be looked for in any world of Melkor. But now at least it is clean, yet utterly barren, and naught liveth there, nor nor ever hath nor shall. And herein is revealed again the world, the words of Iluvatar. For Ithil has become a mirror to the greater Earth, catching the light of the sun when she is invisible. And because of malice, silver has been made of gold and moonlight of sunlight and earth in its anguish and loss has been greatly enriched. Whew. Okay. All right. Um, this passage is amazing. This is an amazing passage. And uh, what, okay, what I like about this, right, what I like about this well, no, let me not start there. Start there. I'm not just going to hate on the round world version of the story. There are things to like about it. And I like some of the things about this very much. But this passage is for me like a perfect illustration of the best of times and the worst of times in the round world version. Right. Let's start with the worst of times. Um. It's a little weird, right? Um Yeah, yeah. Alyssa, that's exactly what I was trying to get at, and you've said it really, really well. Um uh Alyssa says this is it's almost a reversion to the Book of Lost Tale, to a Book of Lost Tales origin myth. Exactly, exactly. In the early days in the Book of Lost Tales, a lot of the stories had mythological punchlines. Like, not exactly in the same way, but I can't help but think, probably because I was reading them to my kids at the same time, uh, I can't think but help but think of uh, Kipling's Just So stories, right? They like, you know, how the elephant got his trunk and, and uh, you know, how uh, uh, the uh, the leopard got his spots and all that kind of thing, right? Um, it, uh, he did that kind of thing a lot, right? Like, we got that in the in the Baron and Luthien story. Like, right in the middle of the Baron and Luthian story, we get, like, we get Tevildo and Huon, and that's why dogs and cats to this day still don't get along, right? We got, this is why Ireland, right? Uh, um, and now we're getting, and this is why the moon exists, right? Because Melkor grabbed out a chunk of the the, the, the world. And Nancy, I agree, Nancy says, Melkor's secret moon base Sounds like a joke when I tell people about it. Yeah, yeah, Christopher, I was thinking of the parallel between Ireland and the Moon as well. Uh, yeah, I think um, I think there's actually an interesting paper in that potentially, <laughs> Christopher uh, or Chris, I should say. Sorry, not to confuse you with Christopher Tolkien. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Josiah was thinking the same thing. It's like space Ireland, exactly, exactly. Yes, yeah. Melkor's little Death Star, Tony, exactly. Um, um, but, um, anyway, yes, Rihanna and I agree with you. The idea of Melkor living in the moon gives the whole man in the moon came down too soon story, an an ominous connotation, right? Oh my goodness. Um, but, um, Sarah Grant says, I'm pretty sure I saw this on ancient aliens, right? Yes. These things that you are pointing to is exactly why to me, this feels discordant, right? It feels like, in his attempt to make the mythology more consistent with the modern scientific view of the world, more consistent with our historical world, right? Not just scientific world, but with our historical world. Um, He is reverting. And I like that word, Alyssa, that seems to me right. He's reverting to a, a kind of mythology, a kind of mythological storytelling, which he had, moved past, not fully, but largely. And I think, well, I, I, you know, the elements of, of myth of explanation um, that still remain in the Silmarillion, and we still do see some of those things. Um, um, it's, it's, it takes a different place, right? It's not the point of the stories anymore. Um, and here it's, um, it's, it just, it feels very, very strange for that reason. It doesn't seem to fit with the whole idiom in which the Ina had been going, right? Um, uh, Josiah, I agree with you. There's definitely a paper in that. Uh, unlike, uh, there, It bears an interesting likeness to the myth of the moon in Lewis's space trilogy. Yes. Compare and contrast Melkor's secret moon base with uh, the way that the moon is described, especially in that hideous strength? Heck yeah. Absolutely. But anyway, okay. Um, but here's what I love about this. Um, now, Sarah, I hear you when you say that uh, you love Ithil the moon and Ithil's, you know, the moon's place in Tolkien's mythology too much to give it over to Melkor's lunar base, you know, and uh, to have it be a product of Melkor. And I hear that but at the same time, that's actually my favorite thing about it. Um, the way in which he takes this story of the moon, he gives a... Um, this version of the story of the moon is one of the most direct and to me, like where we get by the end, like all the stuff about the lunar base and 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 all that stuff. Again, it I I I have this negative reaction to all this stuff. It feels sillier. It feels more uh, l- like a reversion, Alyssa, as you were describing. Um, but um, speaking of which, hi Alyssa, good to see you again. Um, uh, glad you could join us. Um, anyway, um, but by the time we get to the end, I love the end, right? And herein is revealed again the words of Iluvatar, for Ithil has become a mirror to the greater earth, catching the light of the sun when she is invisible. And because of malice, silver has been made of gold and moonlight of sunlight, and earth in its anguish and loss has been greatly enriched. Right? He makes the formation of the moon, he makes the history of the moon, this violent history of war and espionage of the moon. The fact that the, that the moon was part of Melkor's malicious plot, right? Um, and yet becomes, Sarah, the moon that you love, Ithil the Fair, right? Um, he makes it into one of the most powerful illustrations of Iluvatar's words to Melkor at the end of the music that he ever wrote. There, is, there are very few places in the published Silmarillion or anywhere else where Tolkien more explicitly illustrates what that principle, that thing that Iluvatar tells Melkor, right? He tells him the principle, right? He tells him the theory. Here's what's going to happen. Here's how it's going to work out, right? Um, and it is illustrated. It is pointed to more clearly and compellingly and powerfully, I feel, at the end of this passage than he does almost anywhere else. And I loved that. I loved that. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yes. None may alter the music in Iluvatar's despite Stephen, and this is what that looks like. This is what how the the providence of Iluvatar and the work of the and through the work of the Valar, of course, uh, is going to take even the most horrible actions of Melkor. That business about um, uh, the the. The earth in its anguish and loss, right? Um, and how through its anguish anguish and loss, loss it's going to be greatly enriched. And how, again, in this way, another illustration of how evil, though remaining evil, will still be good to have been. How it is that providence can accommodate those things and marry exactly, bring forth good out of evil. So I love that. I love that. You know, again, this is this is still Tolkien, right? This is still Tolkien doing this, uh, and it's not like the whole thing is horrible from one end to the next. Um, but um, but anyway, yeah. Like I said, this passage was for me like the best and the worst. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Okay. Uh, let me, uh, let me, I'm sorry, there are more questions, but I'm going to have to move on because, hey, look, we're out of the Ainulindale with uh, 15 minutes to spare. That's plenty. Um I think we can cover all of today's reading in only 15, 20 minutes. So we go back to the beginning of the annals now, right? Uh So this is the beginning of the annals. And I want to focus here on his description of the Valar, especially, right, as how is he refining the mythology, not just the approach to the mythology, right? Having chosen the sea text of the Aino he's kind of made that choice to some extent. We're not going to be round earthing it again for a while. Um, but how is he changing these characters? What kind of shape is he giving to their, what kind of new shapes is he giving to their stories? At the beginning, Eru Iluvatar made Ea, the world that is, and the Valar entered into it. And they are the powers of Ea. These are the nine chieftains of the Valar that dwelt in Arda, Manwe, Olmo, Aule, Orome, Tulkas, Ossë, Mandos, Lorien, and Melkor. Of these, Manwe and Melkor were most puissant and were brethren. Manwe is lord of the Valar and holy, but Melkor turned to lust of power and pride and became evil and violent, and his name is accursed and is not spoken. He is named Morgoth. Orame and Tulkas were younger in the thought of Eru, ere the devising of the world, and Tulkas came last to the kingdom of Arda. The queens of the Valar are seven. Varda, Yavanna, Nienna, Vaire, Vanna, Nessa, and Uin. No less in might and majesty are they than the chieftains, and they sit ever in the councils of the Valar. What do you notice? What do you notice here? Of course, some, uh, the one of the, biggest things, right, is the way uh the lists, right? How the lists differ. Uh from the same lists, the nine chief you know, the the the, the, the primary numbers, right? The primary characters. Who's different? Good Marie Uinen is a Vala. Yeah. Yeah. Um Who else? Ause. Right? Ause is another big difference maker up here. Um, Yeah. Good. Good, Mary. Yeah. Ause's presence um, and Este's absence. Right? We'll get back to Este more later. Um, But... uh, And good. Yes. Melkor is listed with them. Absolutely. As... um, uh, David uh, Atli is say, was saying, despite the elves' disdain for Morgoth and not wanting to say his name and calling him accursed, uh, they still count him as among the Valar from the beginning, right? And uh, and even there, David, um, I think we can see, just as you were talking about before, that, that same arc that you were pointing to, right? The text is insisting on remembering the arc, right? Melkor is among the nine chieftains of the Valar, right? And Paragraph 2 emphasizes that. Manwe and Melkor, right? Inviting us, you know, instructing us to think about those two together, how those two are the two different choices, right? And so in that way, David, as you were suggesting, it does emphasize Morgoth's fall more, right? He's not just like, we don't have like the two brothers. One was evil from the beginning, and one was good from the beginning, right? We have these two brothers who are most puissant, most powerful, and they're brethren, right? And one is holy, and the other turned to lust of power and pride. So you've got the one that stayed on the right path and the one that veered away from the path and became evil and violent. Not is, became evil and violent. And his name is, present tense, accursed, right? Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um. Good, yeah, Nelson and Tony were both observing Tolkien's uh, preoccupation with the numbers nine and seven. Absolutely. Important numbers. Plenty of evidence for that. Um, uh, yeah. Good. Good. Um, what do you think about. Um, we talked about Ase and Unin, but we didn't ask the so what question. So what? So they were included among the Valar at the beginning. So what? What does that suggest? Why do Asse and Uinen get demotions? Do you think? Um. Why? Why is he? He's he's going to move away from that, and soon it's going to happen in the in the drafting here. It's going to happen in uh, in the revision process of these annals right here. So we're about to... It's one of the reasons I was drawing attention to it because it's about to happen, right? Um, What are their jobs again? Let's refresh our memories. I don't want to assume everybody remembers every detail about the Silmarillion, right? Who are Ase and Unin, right? Their team. Who are they responsible for? Good, yes. Waves and storms. Ase is waves and storms, right? Yes, they're associated with water... Especially the shores, right? And storms. Uh huh. The calming of the waters, right? The hair of Uinen, yes, yeah, spreads through all the waters of the world, Marie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Uinen is associated with rivers as well. Again, the, with her hair, right? Absolutely. Um, I'll say, yes, is is uh, really important in Numenor, though. I don't. Hmm. Hmm. Hey, somebody look something up for me. Um, Somebody who has a copy of Unfinished Tales right to hand. um, See, look at the beginning of the story of Alderion and Arendis and tell me when Christopher thinks it was written, the story of Alderion and Arendis. Yeah, yeah. Um, When's that? I ask that because I think that is the time when Uenin is most closely associated with the... new The, the idea that Uenin was specially revered by the Numenorians. I think, dates from that story. It em- emerges in the, the, con- the, the uh, course of that story. Um, so I'm just thinking about dates, wanting to see if that... Because, of course, we know the Numenor story is huge in his mind right now, right? Like, during this whole period. Um, uh, And so it would make sense. 65? No way. Really? I thought it was earlier than that. Maybe. He doesn't say? Christopher doesn't even guess? I thought he did. No? Huh. Interesting. Okay. All right. So I did my Silmarillion pop quiz. Book of Lost Tales pop quiz. What's the difference between Asei and Olmo, from the beginning? Like, why in Tolkien's mythology is there one dude Asei who controls the oceans and the and the and the the shorelines and storms at sea and stuff? Shouldn't that be Olmo's job? Isn't Olmo the big like the the dude of the seas, right? The Valar of the of the of. The, I mean, isn't he the water guy, right? Head water guy? Why does he? Why does Tolkien have two? Guys, in the first place, yeah. Olmo delegates, Stephen. Yes, you're right. You're right. Um, good. Yes, Rhiannon and Josiah. Absolutely. Olmo is associated with the outer seas, the outer waters, and the depths. Now, I don't want to get too much into this because this is super complicated, like Embarkanta cosmology stuff. But Olmo is actually not primarily associated with water as strange as that might seem to say with the outer seas but the outer seas aren't water it's like the ether i mean like the the oceans are the lesser seas right that's like the that that because the ocean at the end of the day is just a a basin full of water right a biggish basin full of water but to the valar not so big Right. I mean, you've got this crust on the earth and parts of the crust have dips in it and they're puddles. And we, because we're fairly small, call those things oceans and the great seas. Right. That's a big deal to us. But in the big picture, not so big a deal. Right. Compared to the outer seas. And so the whole like the 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 entire the entirety of Arda is enclosed by the great seas, the outer seas, right? And that's what Omo's primary thing is. So, Omo is the one, like, if, um, remember how, uh, even, even in the flat earth times, Arda is described as being globed amidst the void. What globed in what sense? What forms a globe around Arda? The outer seas, globe it, right? So, Omo's primary job is globing Arda, right? So is he a bigger deal than Osse? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got a bigger province, right? But this is why osse he's in charge of the oceans, right? He's in charge of, like, the actual running of the waters thing, right? This also, of course, helps to make sense of the fact, or makes it very logical, that Omo would be a little bit distant, kind of an absentee dude, right? Because he's involved in, like, the glow. He's the guy who's, like, containing... The world in space, right? Um, so anyway, it's a big deal. So you've got Olmo and you've got Ase, so they, their jobs don't overlap, right? You don't have it's not exactly like a, you know the relationship between the two of them, it's not like a you know the big ocean deity and then a, a more minor ocean deity, right? That's not how they are set up a, at the beginning, right? So, anyway, the fact that Ase gets his own, um uh, the, the, the fact that Ase gets his own gig, you know, at the beginning and is listed as one of the major ones, he's not a peer of Olmo. Olmo is one of the really, really great ones, right? Uh, you know, that's why Olmo is up there with Manway. He's on the really, he's on the super short list of really powerful Valar. But Ase is certainly up there with like Orome, right? No problem. And Tolkys? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um... You know, his province is is uh, is, uh, is sort of similar in that way. So Ase and Uinen have a more significant role. As the cosmology is developing here, so one of the signs, I think, to get back to one of Christopher uh, Tolkien's favorite things here, um, as the cosmology, one sign of the development of the cosmology here, I think, is the imminent demotion of Ase and Uenin. Um As... He's gonna. He Tolkien is gonna be working less with the whole outer seas, and he's not gonna be thinking about that stuff nearly as much as he was before. Um, not laying those things out in in nearly the same way. Olmo is gonna become more like a just like a water god, right? More he's gonna be become more Poseidon like, and therefore displace Osei from his more his older, more Poseidon esque role, right? um okay yeah um good sorry james is saying uh uh christopher's really light on dates in Alderion and Arendis. Uh, the only one i can find mention of is the january 1965 date that he gives for a typescript on uh, on which the printed text is based that occurs in the introduction to the book okay interesting all right so it's so it's later good so so i don't think therefore we can think about Uanin's relationship with Numenor, therefore, um, uh, as influencing how he's dealing with Uanin uh, in this, in this case, then. Thanks. That's, I'll, I'll just sort of accept that, um, as we go. But, um, uh, But yes, David, I do think that Olmo's direct influence in Middle-earth is lesser in the Lost Tales version of the stories. It also, of course, makes it kind of a bigger deal when Olmo shows up and talks to um, uh, talks to Tuor, right? Um, And also makes a little bit more sense of the approach that Olmo takes. I mean, in the Book of Lost Tales, when Olmo shows up to, to Tuor, he says to him, all right, Look, the rest of the Valar are ignoring Middle-earth, right? I'm not. I, I, I'm, you know, they're all doing their over thing. I'm doing my own thing here, right? So, Tuor, let's do this. You deliver this message to, to Turgon, and you tell him, if he sets out and attacks Morgoth, right, if he does his part, I'll deliver the Valar, right? I'm going to go, and I'm going to rally the rest. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to I'm gonna get in their business, right, and I'm going to make it happen. Right? I'm going to I'm gonna change things, I'm going to alter the fate of stuff, and I'm going to go against what the rest of the Valar are doing, but I'm going to recruit them. He's not he's not going Melkor, right? He's going to recruit them, and he's going to bring them in. But yeah, if Turgon takes the field, I'll deliver the Valar in his support, says Omo. And the old Omo, the Book of Lost Tales Omo, you, you can kind of imagine. I mean, he's almost like the really powerful, authoritative uncle, right? Hanging out there, right? Who... Like, you can forget that he even exists, right? He never really shows up to Thanksgiving dinner or whatever, but uh, but when he does show up and say something, everybody, like, does what he says, right? Because he's kind of scary. Like, <laughs> that's, I don't know. Not a great metaphor, perhaps, but... Um, anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, Bruce, see, I, I wonder. You know, Bruce is remembering the times in exploring the World of the Rings where we've been sort of speculating. Do we see... Uh, influence from Olmo unlike Frodo's dream in uh, uh, in um, Buckland or something like that. Um but I think th- that was already changing. That old version of Olmo that's 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 Book of Lost Tales. It's already developing. It's already changing. And again, I so I'll say in Uwen and are imminently uh to be uh, uh, to be demoted. Okay. Varda was Manwë's spouse from the beginning, but Aulë espoused Yavanna, his sister, in Ea. Vana the Fair, her younger sister, is the wife of Orome, and Nessa, the sister of Orome, is Tulkas' wife, and Uenin, Lady of the Seas, is the spouse of Ossë. Vire the Weaver dwells with Mandos. No spouse hath Olmo, nor Melkor. No lord hath Nienna the Sorrowful, Queen of Shadow, Manwe's sister, and Melkor's. The wife of Lorien is Este the Pale, but she goes not to the councils of the Valar, And is not accounted among the rulers of Arda, but is the chief of the Maiar. With these great powers come many other spirits of like kind, but less might and authority. These are the Maiar, the beautiful, the folk of the Valar. And with them are numbered also the Valarindi, the offspring of the Valar, their children begotten in Arda, yet of the race of the Ainur, who were before the world. They are many and fair. They are many and fair. That's the sentence that really blows me away. Um, Not only... So, the concept that the Valar have kids, that they not only marry, but they beget and bear, right? And have children within Arda. Um, Again, many of you will remember that that's been part of the mythology from the beginning. And, of course, we know from the published Silmarillion, it's going to exit the mythology by the time Christopher brings out the book. So, um, that's, um, surprise. So David, I agree. I too am surprised. Uh, again, if I had been forced to guess without, you know, knowing in advance, my guess would have been, that feels like the kind of change that's happening now, right? In these, sort of larger shifts that are going on in the whole framework and story of the Silmarillion, right? The mythological framework of the Silmarillion. It's not. Notice, not only is he not has he not changed, he's not even phasing it out, right? I mean, it'd be one thing, you'd think that he might be maybe at least moving in the direction of being like some of the Valar still have children, but it's unusual. Like are very but they are very few or whatever. No, nope, he's doubling down. Right? Yet of the race uh, uh, their children begotten in Arda yet of the race of the Ainur who were before the world they are many and fair. They're all over the place, the Valarindi. Right? Okay. All right. Um fascinating. Fascinating that he's still doing that, that he's still going there. But notice the implication of it, right? So, okay, David, having just said that I think it's, that I would have expected him not to do this, the fact that he is doing it still, I think we can still make some sense of it, right? Notice the implication. Maybe I'm wrong about the implication here, but I think I see this. With them are numbered also the Valarindi, the offspring of the Valar, their children begotten in Arda, yet of the race of the Ainur, who were before the world. They are many and fair. They are begotten in Arda. So the Valar have taken upon themselves, they have bound themselves to Arda, right? They take upon themselves shape. Now those shapes are still just sort of temporary things, right? They're not essential to them. And yet we can say things like the race of the Ainur. They have a they have a race, right? They have they beget offspring in artists. So the implication would seem to be that with the um with this the contextualizing of the mythology in the context of the the sort of greater demand for consistency and psychological realism of the Lord of the Rings. He seems to be not only okay with, but again, even doubling down on, having the link between the Valar and the physical world be stronger. See what I mean? Um, It's like, since they are connected to Arda... Now they have substance. They are they are they are a race. They can beget children. They don't exactly have physical bodies, but they don't exactly not have physical bodies either, right? Um, <laughs> you see what I mean? Uh, they 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 are more. They act like a race within Arda. They act like the children of Iluvatar. Their relationship with Arda is kind of similar, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Veronica says, if the thouar can reproduce, then their kids can reproduce, and you have that same problem that Greek mythology has, too many demigods and other figures. Um, with the loss of fertility, the characters are set. Yes, well, it's with the few exceptions, right? Like uh, Melian, of course, very importantly. Um, we don't want to lose that one. Uh, but 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 yes, I agree in general. Um, but this seems to me to be still, I think, a transitional stage. Still a transitional stage from Valar as folks like you and me, like they are in the Book of Lost Tales, and the Valar is more distant, right? More ethereal in a sense. That's a really clumsy word to use, but I th- hope you know what I'm trying to. Uh, uh to evoke by saying that um, more distant from the whole experience connection to art you know to the world that uh, uh, kind of embodiment within the world that that the children of Iluvatar have um, there are other details which we'll come back to when we encounter them a little bit later on. We talked about O and an Uh, Vire the Weaver dwells with Mandos. She's kind of newish. She's not totally new, but uh, in the Book of Lost Tales, Nienna was the spouse of Mandos. Um, She was the Queen of the Dead originally. Um, So Nienna has been displaced, and she's doing a solo act now. Um, We'll come back to Nienna, because she's still not quite... She is given a really significant uh, status. Uh, Who was asking about Nienna? Yeah, Steven. Um, She's given... I mean... She's the sister of Manway and Melkor. That's a big deal, right? We had them as the, the sort of the two that are brethren in most Puissant and now Nienna, yeah, the sorrowful. Um, she's still Queen of Shadow, notice, right? There's still darkness associated with her. She was the Queen of Shadow. She was the Queen of the Dead. She was the Black Queen, but she's not anymore. And yet she's still shadowy, right? And we're not told anything else about her now. We'll be told more in a bit. Um, we'll come back to her as I say. Um, the, I, the fact that Este, Lorien's wife, was the, um, the chief of the Maiar, that she is this uh, like bridge right, between the the Valar uh, and the Maiar, the, the people. And I will say, notice the difference here between the people of The Valar, right? That's you know, that's that's the word used so often in the Book of Ost Tales. The people of the Valar and their um uh and the 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 Maiar, the beautiful, the folk of the Valar. Um, what um uh, yeah, Josiah, I don't know, it, it does almost sound like in saying Vire dwells with Mandos, is he's. It's he seems to almost specifically avoid saying is the spouse of Mandos. I don't know if their relationship with different are Vire and Mandos. Do they have they just moved in together but they haven't tied the knot? I don't, I don't know. Um, is she is she not are they not married? Are they related? And is she a sister maybe or, or something? I mean, again, like they live together, right? Their team. Uh, but he's explicitly, you're right. He specifically doesn't say that they're, uh, they're just roommates. Exactly. They just, um, they have a, they have a, they have a, they keep their relationship professional. Um, it's, they have common law marriage among the vower, Brian. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Um, but um, yeah, they've certainly been together long enough to trigger it, David, if they do have a common law marriage. I agree. Um uh, that's interesting. Michelle says, uh, you know, Nienna seems to be almost a kind of midpoint between Manway and Melkor. That's a really interesting way to think about it. Um, exactly, Margaret. I agree. Yeah. Vire and, and, uh, Mando, sorry, it's complicated. No question. Um, but anyway, sorry, what was that? I was, oh yeah, Este. Uh, no, sorry, the, uh, the, the, the Meyer. Um, another Book of Lost Tales quiz. Um, who were the people? Who are the people of the Valar? who were who who were manway's people who were who were uh, 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 uh Aule's people you remember who were Yovana's people exactly josiah um sprites sylphs brownies um Gnomes, like the tunneling gnomes, not the Noldor. Uh Those guys. The, uh, uh, yeah. Um, the sylphs are names that have been given by people over time to the people of the Valar. So also like the Fair Folk and... The, the, I mean, like, think of all of the mythologies and, and the, uh, yeah, with like, you know, gods and elemental, you know, like ifrites and jinns and all the, like, th- those are all people of the Valar, right? Um, all that stuff is, again, this as we were saying before, as Alyssa was saying, the Book of Lost Tales, very interested in myths of explanation, right? And one of the things that the Book of Lost Tales is most interested in by its title, Right. This is the the book of lost tales, which tales, if they hadn't been lost, we would understand better why all these things happen. Why have all there been all these stories? Why are there all these stories about fairies and wars and ancient wars and and all these, uh, you know, these mysterious semi-divine figures and everything else? Well, all of these traditions, these fairy tale and mythological traditions are garbled versions of the truth. Right. And Ariel changed to Alfwina, brought home the true story, the true story of the elves, the true story of the gods, right? Um, yeah, so um, uh, the, the Maiar, the beautiful, the folk of the Valar were in a different place, totally different place. We're not talking about brownies and sylphs anymore, uh, certainly not. All right. Well, we should be done. One more, one more. The years. I'm going to nominate this for, uh, I think, I'm sure this is probably going to become almost everybody's favorite Tolkien passage, right, after reading this. It is computed, first of all. Come on, right? A Tolkien paragraph that begins, it is computed by the lore masters. Right? I mean, come on, That is a classic, right there. It is computed by the Loremasters that the Valar came to the realm of Arda, which is the Earth. 5,000 Valian years ere the first rising of the moon, which is as much as to say 47,901 in in of our years— Of these, 3,500, or 33,530 of our reckoning, passed ere the measurement of time first known to the Eldar began with the flowering of the trees. Those were the days before days. Thereafter, 1,405 and 90 valian years, or 14,000 of our years in 322, followed during which the light of the trees shone in Valinor. Those were the days of bliss." In those days, the year 1050 of the Valar, the elves awoke in Quivienen, and the first age of the children of Iluvatar began. Um, <laughs> yeah, Stephen says, just with the first line, this is my favorite Tolkien passage. Whew, yeah. Oh, man, this is... I agree, Nancy. Get Everybody get out your abacus, right? And we'll go over this passage again. Um, but um, anyway, this is... Uh, This is, this is fantastic. (laughs) Matt's response is, truly, you have a dizzying intellect. Um, uh, Okay. I I don't want to get into the details here. We're not going to do math. Don't worry. There's not going to be a math quiz here. Um, There are two things, though, that I want to point to, right? Uh, Although this is a, this is in some ways a kind of an awkward passage and a kind of a funny passage. Um... I think this passage is one of the purest examples of the trend that we've been seeing throughout Morgoth's Ring so far, right? And so we're going to end with this passage tonight. It's my culmination of the first two classes, right? Notice the two impulses that are at work here. I talked about marriage, right? Marriage of the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings. See the marriage happening here? Or rather, like, this passage is a child of that marriage, right? On the one hand, we have the myths, right? We have the assertion of that deep mythological framework, right? Ignore all the numbers. Read it through and ignore all the numbers, right? And we still get these luminous mythological concepts. Right. Which are so radiant, which are so powerful in Tolkien's legendarium. Right. Um, Ere the measurement of time first known to the Eldar began with the flowering of the trees. Those were the days before days. During which the light of the trees shone in Valinor. Those were the days of bliss. Capital D, capital B. In those days, the elves awoke in Quivienin, and the first age of the children of Iluvatar began. Right? We have the mythological framework. And we also have all the numbers. We also have the computation. But let's crank this out, people. Let's figure out exactly how this translates to recorded history of the Lord of the Rings world. Right? Um, I, uh, yeah, you know, there it is, right? So we have the days before days. I mean, just, I'm not trying to make fun of Tolkien here, but the, the irony, right? The tension of, on the one hand, telling us those were the days before days, wait, Tolkien. Which one? Which were the days before days? Oh yeah, that 47,901 years. 47,901. Right? Those were the days before days. How many days before days were there? Exactly. 47,901. Okay. Great. That's, that's, That's great. That's great. Again, so you see, like, you can see him wanting to do both right you can see him trying to bring together the myth you know the myths of the legendarium with the specificity um specificity in, in different of different kinds right with the kind of uh history real or feigned right that the lord of the rings is um and you know i got I, I i i you know i i'm 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 i hope you are understanding how um Uh, uh, good-naturedly I'm trying to tease Tolkien for this passage, but, but, I mean, this passage makes it so clear, doesn't it, the way that he's trying to bring those two things together, and when he, when they come together, this, like, explicitly, it's kind of jarring, right, um, but anyway, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and David, I absolutely agree. David says, "In fairness to Tolkien, this kind of thing is in the finest tradition of medieval biblical scholars." It so is. It so is. Uh, I, yeah, David, I will. I will. You're absolutely right. Medieval readers would have eaten this on toast. They would love this, right? Um, Uh, I mean, like, oh, like the little ears of the medieval, of like medieval monks reading this passage would have been perking up like nobody's business at the sentence it is computed by the lore masters, right? They would have absolutely loved this. Um, So yeah, yeah, no, it's, this is not just him being kind of, you know, weird. Um, But, um, but anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, the, uh, the joining is not yet perfect right but we can see the tensions at play i think um you're right josiah hobbits would also probably like it the numbers laid out plain and straightforward right absolutely I, I i can see them getting into it all right we'll leave that here we'll come back and we'll look at more examples from the mythology as it's growing over the course of the annals we'll be looking at some of the uh, uh some of the really interesting like uh, coming back to nienna and stuff as i said before um uh, keep reading on I know we're behind that's okay it's b- built in to fall behind but uh, uh, try to keep up with the reading if you can this was uh what what was it sections one through three right of the of the uh, the the annals we're gonna' we'll, I'm gonna let's read four through six for next time we may pause after that and do an extra class in there to finish up the annals I'm not sure we'll see how that goes but anyway keep reading for next time thanks everybody good night see you guys next week bye now The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org.